I'm Josh Cooperman, and this is Convo by Design with another installment of the Wellness and Design Thought Leadership Series presented by Thermosol. This is a look back at what we were saying about wellness in a previously unpublished conversation from the Convo by Design Programming Lounge at the West Edge Design Fair in 2019, the last time we did it live. I think you're going to find this pretty interesting. <laughs> First, a note about the West Edge Design Fair. I'm not entirely sure if it will ever happen again. I just know that I really, really, really hope it does. I've made so many friends, not the least of which are Troy and Megan, founders of the show. This conversation from the fair in 2019 features moderator Ben Stapleton, executive director of US GBC LA, and features Brady Zaitun, Angel City, Lumber, Gordon Stott, Connect Homes, and Lori Tierney of Tierney Management, LLC. The intro for this read, quote, did you know that air quality in your home or workplace is typically two times worse than air quality outside? Join our roundtable discussion on the materials and environment in the places we live and how your choices affecting the health of the space are just as critical as those affecting your style, end quote. So what is so interesting to me in retrospect is that all of these issues would be of critical importance as we were all confined to our homes in early 2020 for five months after this was recorded. It's even more relevant now than it was then with a renewed focus on air quality, water quality, noise abatement, and sustainable, safe, building materials, and quality building practices. The ideas espoused here are actually more important now and will continue to be so for designers and architects on behalf of their clients. Great chat, and I'm so happy to present it to you. And it's really funny because I would have loved to present it to you in early 2020 when it was originally planned, but as you may recall, some things happened. So we'll, we'll get to it in just a minute. But first this. If you've been listening to Convo by Design for a while now, you have heard me tell you about Article. Great style. Really, it's as simple as that with Article. Things have been challenging for design professionals and their clients for, what, two years? Two plus years now? Y you know this already. What you might not know is that it doesn't have to be if you're looking for exceptionally beautiful modern furniture. Article provides a simple and easy way to creating a beautiful modern space because Article works direct with their manufacturers on production of unique and stunning pieces. Then they work directly by providing this well-crafted design directly to you. This direct relationship means you aren't wondering where your furniture is and you're getting it for an incredible value. What could possibly be better than that? In many cases, the shipping is flat rate, which means no surprises right? Even more, their culture and service are rooted in their core values, customer obsession, doing it differently, ownership mindset, winning together. If you're a designer, architect, or residential developer, you must check out their trade program. Discounts, special support, and exclusive perks. Article has the beautiful modern furniture you're looking for at an incredible price, at an incredible value, and you need to check them out. Check out article.com, or if you go to the show notes, there is a specific link which will take you, if you're in the trade, directly to their trade program. You have to see it to really believe it. Thank you, Article. 
Thank you. Uh, so we are the last panel of the whole conference. We are going to shut this down. Thank you. I like our crowd already. We have a really good crowd here. Yes. Yes. Um, so my name is Ben Stapleton. I'm the executive director for the U.S. Green Building Council, Los Angeles. Uh, we're a member-based organization that covers all of the greater L.A. metro area, as well as the Inland Empire for green buildings, sustainability in the built environment. That's what we care about. If you care about it too, I'd invite you to come out, check out our website, and come out to some of our events. Uh, I'm excited about this panel as well. Um, healthy buildings in general is a big focus for us in, in 2020. Uh, I think right now we're having a little bit of a moment where people are starting to realize a lot more about the environments they're in on a day-to-day -day basis. And uh, as we get access to more data about the space we spend our time in, uh, the more we come to realize how little we actually know and how far we have to go to really create healthy environments around us. Uh, so with that, I'd like to introduce uh, our panel. Uh, I'm going to start with uh, Gordon Scott. If you could go ahead and introduce yourself and talk about your connection to design a little bit. Sure, sure. Uh, hello, everyone. Thanks so much for um, coming out and uh, listening to us. Uh, my name is Gordon Stott. Uh, I'm a co-founder of a company called Connect Homes. We build modern green prefab homes. Uh, we have a design office in downtown Los Angeles. Uh, we have a 80,000 square foot factory in San Bernardino, uh, and we have an assembly line there. And right now we're pumping out about like a house a week, roughly, like about 2,000 square foot, six module house uh, every week. Uh, and so, you know, I think that my connection to design and this question is both as an architect and also as someone who's been trying to come up with a way to make uh, healthy green design more affordable for more people. Uh, and doing so by turning architecture into a product that people can essentially purchase um, almost like they're ordering off a menu. Uh, but yeah, so that's, uh, that's my connection to design and I've been doing this for about 15 years, I guess. Thank you. Lori? Good afternoon, everybody. Thanks for uh, sharing your Sunday afternoon with all of us. You're very brave. Uh, my name is Lori Tierney. I'm an interior designer for many years in Los Angeles. And also, my company is called Tierney Management. And we work uh, with marketing uh, some of the sustainable uh, programs, like the Well Building Standard, having worked with uh, Delos out of New York, who founded that program back since 2014. Uh, so we're passionate about um, health and wellness in the built environment, sustainability. And I personally cross over in, into a passion that I have. I teach yoga. I'm an avid yoga person. Uh, and I think it's um, super important to marry those things together, the, the health of the, of the human body. We're all, it's all interconnected, right? So if we're healthy and we're doing healthy things, we're also thinking about the healthy environment we are in or not in. So for me, it all is a full circle. Uh, so I'm very passionate about all of those things, and I'm very grateful that all of you are here to listen today and to share uh, what you know, because this is a conversation, and you all out there in the audience have so much to contribute. So I'm looking forward to hearing what you have to say as well. Thank you. Grady? Yes, hello. My name is Brady Zaytun. I'm with Angel City Lumber. Uh, we're an urban lumber mill that intercepts the fallen trees of Los Angeles. We take those and, sell, and make them into usable lumber. Uh, that is anything from dimensional boards to slabs to interior artwork, sculptural pieces. Um, so my role within Angel City Lumber is to work with the design community to take 
our local resources and put them back into innovative projects here in our local community. So, and also, so that's the material side of what I do, but I also have a background in mechanical engineering and I'm a commissioning agent that uh, does indoor air quality uh, HVAC commissioning. Uh, that's something that I specialize in as well, so. That's a, that's a bonus surprise for this panel. Thank, thank you, Grady. <laughs> Uh, so there's actually a, a reason why all these folks are here. So we very specifically wanted to have an architect on the panel, and, and it's even more of a benefit that uh, Gordon's company manufactures homes, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. And Lori and her work, not only with her connection to interior design, uh, but also the work she does now, we've, we've known each other for years in really the wellness space and certifying spaces to make sure they're healthy for people. And then we wanted to have someone who's, who was really on the manufacturing side, who was looking at the products, how they're being put together. It, it is really a bonus that you're also a commissioning agent. I'm, I'm, the green building nerd in me is like really excited about that. I, I feel like we have so much more to talk about now. Um, so I wanted to start a little bit with, with design. Um, so we talked about this a little bit on our call earlier this, earlier this week, Gordon, but if you could talk about how does design play into health in general and some of the tensions that exist around that. Yeah, yeah. So um, as the, I guess, one architect up here right at the moment, um, you know, architecture has sort of a tendency to kind of overpromise and under-deliver in a way. I mean, architects have sort of historically been known for kind of blowing hard and hot about all sorts of topics, um, one of them being healthy buildings. And I think that it's been really interesting to see, you know, n not only obviously do all of us spend probably 80, 85% of the day inside a building, so it's obvious that healthy buildings are uh, sort of a, a really important um, thing to all of us. But, uh, you know, ultimately, yeah, so ultimately, um, not only do we spend so much time in um, the, the, the buildings, but it's also sort of important to understand, I think in a way, historically how uh, architects have approached the issues of health and buildings and, and design. I think that sort of at modernism's dawn about a hundred years ago, I think that there was a tendency when we were thinking about creating healthy spaces to create things that were almost like hospital-like or maybe even clinical spaces that were, uh, you know, in, in ways very sanitized and easy to wipe down. I mean, this was all sort of a ra reaction against the Victorian age when there were like, you know, soft surfaces and a lot of curtains and, and it was before we really sort of understood how germs worked. And so I think that like, as architects and modernism came onto the scene, there was this sort of desire almost to like make the interior spaces uh, similar to what you'd find in like a Finnish sanatorium with like chrome surfaces and white tile and easily wiped down things. Uh, you know, I think that what's really exciting to see here is that, you know, as architects maybe have become a little bit more humble about how health directly fits into uh, sort of the, the larger picture, I think it's less about designing healthy spaces than it is maybe about creating spaces for well-being or spaces where, uh, in essence, you know, we can encourage, you know, not necessarily, you know, clinical spaces, but spaces where we're actually creating spaces and environments that psychically people want to be in and that, you know, really sort of almost relate back in a way to the, you know, to the, to the, to the domestic scale as opposed to, you know, in hospitals, the kind of like cold and clinical scale. And so I think that what's really interesting to see is that even on like the hospital side, we're kind of here to talk about more residential, but even on the hospital side, sort of the trends are towards, you know, creating spaces that are similar now to like more 
boutique hotels, for lack of a better term, but these spaces that, in a way, kind of like, you know, less about the, the cold clinicism, less about like creating health in quotes, but just creating environments that we all want to really spend time in. And I think that that's a super, super positive thing. And I think it, as it relates specifically to what I do at Connect Homes and kind of in creating modern spaces, our homes are essentially, you know, modern architecture. But, you know, humbly what we're really trying to do is connect indoors to outdoors. And since we do spend so much of our time every day inside, we're, we're almost like just trying to trick you into feeling like you're actually outside while you are inside. And so you know, we've got floor to ceiling glass everywhere. And there's this real sort of connection to nature going on at all times. And I just think it's kind of fascinating to think about, you know, um, you, you know how, how healthy spaces really sort of relate back to that concept of air and light, but also in a weird way, just to sort of like convincing your body that you're actually spending time outside when you are indoors. And I think that that, you know, just, comes back to maybe the, the humble fundamental root of maybe what architects were going for when they sort of uh, started the modern project. Yeah, and I think the premise too that at the end of the day we're animals on some level and uh, we're probably not meant to be indoors, at least not 85 or 90% of the time. That's, <laughs> exactly. that's for sure. Um, and you know, the data is actually starting to become really compelling. Uh, it wasn't really up until probably about, I'd say four to five years ago, we started to have really good data around the effects for people being out in green environments. But there's very clear data that shows that you almost get an immediate reduction in stress levels and being outdoors, be surrounded by plants. For students and kids to have access to that kind of thing can be really meaningful for them to break up learning times with getting access to green space. Um, and biophilia, you know, something today that, that is, is having a bigger and bigger impact and we're finding ways using technology to bring into our environments uh, that are less expensive and, and easier to do. Um, Lori, could you maybe talk a little bit about in interior design and, and how you look at the healthy elements that kind of interact with the space for people? Sure, we've touched on some, but I do think it's a really holistic approach that needs to be taken. Um, it's, if it's good for the human, it's good for the space. So we need to be mindful of our body, uh, body rhythms. So circadian lighting, there have been studies where clients, I've had a client that did, um, just to tell a story, they put um, uh, two rooms together, one with circadian lighting in one conference room, and, and this was a you know, commercial space, and the other room was regular, you know, regular lighting, like fluorescent. And they watched their staff gravitate towards the one with the circadian lighting. And nobody knew, right? It was like a blind kind of test. And so that conference room was constantly booked because people felt better in that lighting. So they just felt better in the space. So that's one example. Air quality, as we know with the fires recently that we've had here, um, becomes top of mind. Uh, and it's not that hard to design into with a little bit of extra square footage, um, you know, uh, HVAC systems, you're talking about commissioning, uh, that have carbon uh, filters, at least MERV 13 for, or 14, whatever, 13, but to get into the carbon filtration of the air so that we're not breathing a lot of, you know, particulates, heavy particulate matter. Water is so critical. Uh, these are all just things that we need as human beings to thrive. Biophilia, uh, you know, nature if we had our choice, we probably would all want to have a window that looks out on something green or having a lot of green in our space because it's healing. We feel a connect 
connectedness to nature. And when it's not there, when it's absent, that's when we really start to feel, I think, the stress points of day-to-day life uh, that we all incur, especially in in a major uh, metropolitan area. So, and then things like um, active design, you know, designing in architects are designing into the space, you know, stairways, which actually force us to maybe go upstairs or downstairs to, you know, get a good cup of coffee or something like that. Um, Those are important, tucking an elevator back so it's there, but you don't really use it, you're using the stairway. Uh, sit-stand, desks, ergonomic furniture, all of those things, you know, play into design as well as light, you know, light color, placement of furniture and things of that nature uh, to create this holistic environment that you want to be in. You can go into a space and decide right away if it feels good to you or right away if you want to just, you know, run out the door. So I think those are um, some of the things that we're seeing people look at more and more uh, and incorporate into the space, whether they're using a rating system like the Well Standard or Fitwell or something like that. Those are uh, those attributes in design are what are being incorporated into the design of a space for sure. We're seeing more and more of that. Like probably the last five years, wouldn't you mm-hmm. agree? Okay. So yeah, and no, it's, it's interesting. Uh, the American Institute of Architecture just declared that good design and sustainable design are, are one and the same. So I think we're, yeah. we're definitely sort of having that moment. Uh, I've actually managed uh, different properties and campuses in my lifetime, and, and uh, you're familiar with one that we have that, that is well-certified. And to your point, I think sometimes people don't actually know it right away. I actually would have people come up to me, and the space was designed with a lot of natural light, uh, very communal feel. And, and, I, and again, I think this is something that we all feel today as human beings that are on social media and somewhat disconnected from each other in reality. Um, I was running a co-working space for some time. I have a lot of people that would come in. They're working at home by themselves, and they just wanted to get out and, and be someplace. And immediately, they felt good sort of being in the space. It was a well-certified space. So it was certified in, in terms of having all these things there to really help people feel healthier. But I would have people come back to me three months later, six months later, and say that it literally changed their lives. They felt that much better. And then having that connection to people, and this is another interesting thing, I think, is that kind of along the lines of your comment about, you know, people designing stairs and things to make us do things, you know, a lot of times as people, we want to just kind of go into our cave, right, and do what we have to do and not deal with other people. Uh, But I think actually having communal environments is really important for us, and sometimes you have to force people a little bit out of of their shell to get there, uh, but they do start to feel the the benefits of that. Um, Another thing that's hit me recently is that you know, so much of what happens with any, any building, you know, buildings or places, really starts out with the architect, right? It goes into the design. And the architects and the specifiers really have so much control over what goes into the space. And so I want to talk about products a little bit as well. Um, can you just talk a little bit about how you guys think about where the product comes from and how that works for your business and how that goes into the final product for a moment? Sure. So... Angel City Lumber only uses trees from Los Angeles County, so we, we take the trees that come down naturally, we don't uh, cut them down, but every, every tree we, we recover, we tag with our date that we recover it, the neighborhood it came from, and we keep that information with the piece of wood all the way from uh, recovering it through milling and drying, so every tree has a story. So that's something that we, you know, some more notoriety, uh, notoriable than the next like we did a the Eames Foundation had a large red gum eucalyptus tree come came down and they wanted to reuse that 
So we worked with Herman Miller, who, the furniture manufacturer in Michigan, and decided we could salvage that tree, mill it into boards, and create a uh, small table that they did a special edition from the Eames Foundation. So, so whenever we think about trees, uh, we also think about uh, projects. So a lot of times we work with, with landscape architects, and landscape architects will schedule trees that are coming down, and so we consider that a life cycle project. So with the intention to be reusing those trees into a public park, uh, say uh, like Irving Magic Johnson Park in South Central, like we're repurposing trees there and putting them in as benches. Um, we're doing that at Descanso Gardens as well. Like they just are doing a major renovation of the front entryway and so we're, we're taking some of the redwoods and making uh, usable seating communal space for them as well. Um, so whenever we recover the tree, we, we catalog that. And our, our shop is in downtown Los Angeles. We have a, a you know, relatively large parking lot where we keep all of our logs, about 500, and then we select them and we mill them. We have two custom mills. And from, from there, we, we dry them and, and process them. So it takes, if you want a bench, it would be a, roughly a two-month process from when the time it comes down for us to uh, mill it, to sanitize it, and put it, put it back into a uh, space. So that's, that's all well and good, but for me, almost the most important part is the educational component of that, because if you have a client who's invested money uh, to use a local material, uh, they want to tell that story to the patrons of their restaurant or the guest at their hotel. So the education component and saying this tree uh, you know, came from uh, Beverly Hills. It was literally five miles from the project site. So that has appeal for the uh, local materials and the different sustainability rating systems. Uh, you can get uh, credit for that. Uh, like Living Building Challenge has like a salvage credit. Uh, uh, even LEED, they have, you get, I think, for a certain percentage of the furniture that you place in a space, if it comes from within 100 miles, it basically doubles the value of those points. So uh, we, we keep that, we, we keep that regional local story uh, at the forefront of our of our business model, and it even goes to to a point where we don't we don't ship our materials like we want them to stay local and we we want to uh, cultivate this idea of having a, an urban mill in each in each community so they can basically serve their community with the trees from uh, from their you know region. You are listening to a conversation about healthy, beautiful design. more to come right after this. We are living in a time of incredible growth, both technologically and creatively, with respect to interior design, exterior design, and architecture. There is no question. There are companies thinking differently about the business of design and how to make products super serve those for whom they're being made. One of those companies, and one of my favorites, is Moya Living, designer and fabricators of some of the most stunningly beautiful incredibly durable, and highly functional kitchen, bath, and outdoor kitchen cabinetry on the market today. Powder-coated steel with stunning lines, vibrant colors, to fit any design style or aesthetic. A history of designing cabinetry for the scientific community, so you know it's been tested in some of the truly the most harsh conditions available. Moya O'Neill is the CEO and founder of Moya Living. She's the inspiration behind the design. Designers, their specification process is so simple. It will make your job so much easier. Check them out online through the socials at Moya Living. 
their website, moyaliving.com, and in the real world, their live kitchen showroom in Fountain Valley, California. And I want to dive a little bit deeper on materials here because I think part of what you touched on is a really important issue right now. So some of you may have heard about you know, building decarbonization recently. You know, what, what is that? You know, part of it is how buildings operate, but a big part of it is the embodied carbon that goes into buildings. Um, and so that some of that you know, has to do with design. A lot of that has to do also with the materials that are used in the buildings. And uh, I think we have an opportunity to really create some transparency around our products in a way that, that we haven't before. Um, some of you may be familiar with uh, EPDs, environmental product declarations. Can I get a show of hands if anyone knows what that is? I got like three. We're doing really good. We're doing really good. Um, you know, the, the t tough part is, is that people are now required to make these for some products, but nobody knows how to read them, right? Uh, so we're actually we're developing some training here at USGBCLA in the, in the coming year to, to help with that a little bit. Um, but I'd like to have a little conversation about how do we think the products and the materials that go into the buildings affect people in the space. Lori, you can maybe talk a little about some of the, sure. the, the, the issues that go into the materials themselves. Yeah, yeah I think it's really critical. Uh, the, some of the testing work that we've done, for example, with the well standard, and it's a, it's a uh, performance-based uh, or you know, testing application where you actually, I know in your space, you had to go in and test the air. So it's not just reliant on, you know, in, uh, a, a sheet, right, a paper that said you put this in and it's, for example, it's a no or low VOC uh, component on a piece of furniture. You know, obviously uh, carpet is usually a big offender if there is any furniture as well as paint. Uh, ceiling, all of those things can contribute to off-gassing issues if it's not specified Does properly. Does everyone know what a VOC is? Volatile organic compound. All right, all right. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, checking. Yeah, sorry. Uh, so it's important uh, to not just say that you're with a piece of paper that you're specifying these low VOCs or um, things that don't have radon, all kinds of different um, you know, chemicals that cause horrible things to all of us, right? Uh, that's what I like about testing, you know, what, we, what you do, is the testing part can uncover things that you can't get from a piece of paper that says it, it's, it's in compliance. So, Just because people put it on a piece of paper doesn't yeah, mean they do it. Yeah, it doesn't mean that. We did, we did some work with early adopters of the well standard across the country. It was a, I'm not going to name the, the client, but it was a, uh, a restaurant, a very, very um, sustainable restaurant chain. Uh, healthy eating type, you know, great food, no GMOs, all that. So they were very into the standard, and they found, you know, after doing maybe 15 or 20 uh, different restaurants in different cities under the same um, rating system criteria that the um, there were half of them or so that were testing high for VOCs, even though they were, you know, being specified to lead in well standard. So without that kind of environmental testing, you can't uncover where the breakdowns are in some of those things. It may be spec, but did the actual manufacturer apply the right uh, material to the spec? So was it low VOC laminates, for example, or did they just slide in something else? So I think it's really important as designers out there to make sure that uh, the projects that you're working on, the materials that are going into them, not only are you specifying that the right thing, but that it's actually really getting into the space ultimately. So I think the responsibility too on the designers, which is which is tough for everyone to have to bear a little bit more, right. is to take that extra time to look at what at what you're specifying. Look at the materials, 
look at the manufacturing process because more and more now that information is becoming available. And if it's not from the product that you are looking at or the material you're looking at, there are those that do have it. And so I think it's kind of on us to all create that pressure to create that transparency uh, in the industry. Yeah, totally. You mentioned UCLA. I was in a presentation with them. They have, you know, we think of UCLA as, you know, kind of a really cutting edge university, and they are, but they also have this whole retail component to their school, to their campus with all their products, right? So they're sourcing all these materials like cats and, you know, sweatshirts and branded items, and they have to go source those from, you know, suppliers all around the world, and they have really stringent requirements for that. Uh, so they're applying not only that to uh, what they build, but they're applying it to what they actually sell to, and, you know, taking a real look at the the circular chain of custody, right, of where does it start, what happens to it at the end of its life cycle, for example, and who's touching it along the way, and what are their policies and procedures. Yeah. But, but Lori, sorry, you were saying that um, this healthy restaurant chain was specifying the right product with the right labels, and then just the testing. The actual air, the indoor air quality testing yeah, yeah. was showing that um, it was high in VOCs. Yeah, I yeah. mean, the, the whole, like, yeah, badge engineering kind of thing that happens, I think, with a lot of these products is, is very yeah, intimidating, just even, because as an architect, you think you're specifying the right thing, uh, you know, because it's been labeled as such. But, yeah, that's, uh, the, I think the testing is really the, the key to uncovering where things are sl- slipping through the cracks. And it's, it's not uh, super expensive. I think people uh, think that some of these rating systems start to get too pricey and they won't do them. But four or five years ago, uh, it was a little more um, expensive. Now it's actually first cost in competitive to, uh, to add some of these things in, testing and making sure that it's in compliance. And, you know, it's also important to be aware of your manufacturing process to start. I know that's something that you guys care about at Connect Homes. Could you talk a little bit about how you, how you really encapsulate that process? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I think, you know, what we've isolated as the big sort of resource waste in home construction is actually the process itself. Um, building a house on site is akin to, you know, kind of building anything else that's extremely complex uh, in situ or on site. So it's like having, you know, your car show up in pieces and then you kind of like have a bunch of people assemble it there. Uh, you know, right in front of your garage. And that process just inherently has so much resource waste associated with it, whether it's, you know, um, the two and a half year timeline that it typically takes to potentially build a house on site, whether it's the 8,000 pounds of waste on average that's generated from the production of all of this stuff. So building an assembly line in factory controlled conditions mean not only from the healthy standpoint, you know, we are actually building indoors. And so the house comes out nearly complete with all of its, almost all of its interior finishes, almost all of its exterior finishes once it's been all the way through the assembly line. Um, So it also doesn't get subjected to any kind of weather conditions or, uh, you know, mold inducing kind of uh, uh, environmental opportunities that typically are associated with with normal design, but then also everything that's sort of not used on one house, we have nine stations in our factory and the, the modules move essentially from station to station each day and each workstation has its own workload that's load balanced so that each station takes only a day to complete in essence. Uh, so, you know, station one, we take 
our steel frame modules, and then we do all the floor framing and all the ceiling framing in one day. And then next day, it's all the interior and exterior walls framing. And then the third station is roofing, and fourth station is rough MEP. And as it kind of goes around the the um, factory floor, sort of everything kind of works in this kind of like neat unison. Uh, but then everything that doesn't get used sort of uh, in the course of doing the scope of that station's work essentially can typically get repurposed for, uh, you know, uh, the station sort of the next module that's coming down the line. So another advantage of kind of like selling off a menu is that all of our details of the house are all the same, all of the sort of project product specifications in terms of, you know, recessed lighting or uh, flooring or, you know, um, obviously lumber and other things like that. All of those are the same items that are used in all of our houses. And so, you know, as lumber gets kind of cut down, we're able to use it as blocking or, you know, uh, uh, shims if, if we're cutting it down even more or into our roof system, uh, which has wood framing in it as well. So it, it just ends up kind of in a way uh, that people typically say factory building reduces waste by about 75%. Uh, versus standard side pill construction, I'd say it's probably even a little bit more but than it, that. But it also allows you to really control the environment, so you can make sure that those those products are not, you know, when you're building on site, I'm sure the things that happen on site, they could lead to off-gassing, lead to mold, the things that would be different. You can kind of control that stuff inside the, completely. Inside the, the process. Com- completely, yeah. No, it's, it's definitely, um, you know, uh, it, there's, there's this sort of added excitement that we actually are sort of shipping these things down the road and they're kind of like really large, you know, mobile home sized things that are, that, that are rolling down the road and then they're also craned and picked into place. But then once they're put on site, you know, they're dried out in, in like a matter of hours so that, you know, we really don't have to worry about rain or the elements kind of getting to the items. Um, it's interesting, before I came here, it was, my, it was actually my mom's birthday lunch, and my mom brought up they had to have their, their kitchen, they, they had a big issue because they found a bunch of mold under the sink, they just bought this house, and that whoever lived there before had a leaking appliance underneath the sink, and they ended up having to rip out a ton of the walls, and they said that the only way they found out, they didn't know I was coming to speak at this thing, but she said that someone came in and tested the air quality, and the level of toxins was about eight times uh, what it was supposed to be, even as close as about ten feet from the sink area because of the mold. And I said, hey, you know, I'm about to go to this, this panel. We're going to talk about a few things. Uh, indoor air quality, I think, is, is a, a real pressing issue. Um, and I think we're getting to a place now where actually we're starting to have the technology that can give us the information we need to be able to make decisions and actually know what's, what's around us. So I wanted to dive into this issue a little bit. And, um, you know, for those of you that don't know, again, there's really good data right now around productivity, uh, whether it's CO2 levels, um, whether it's uh, looking at things like a long-term exposure to VOCs that we mentioned. Um, in fact, there was a recent study that was done, and um, they were looking at sick days and, and um, productivity for workers in their environments, and they estimated the value of the loss of sick days and their productivity is about 10 times the cost of what people pay for rent in their space, going from a, a, a sort of a sick building or a non-healthy building to a healthy building. So these are, this is real things, real money for us. 
So I want to talk a little bit about, about air quality for a moment. Maybe I'm going to go to you, Grady, since you're the, you're the ventilation yeah. commissioning guy. But um, if you could talk just a little bit about what, what goes into air quality in general. Like how, how do, what feeds into that? How can we be more aware of what the air is around us? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. I, I think, uh, you know, in general, like the air quality that you breathe in a, inside of a building is, uh, I wouldn't say contaminated, but it's not as healthy as outdoor air quality. So... Um, you have, you know, uh, hot water heaters that are combusting, uh, you know, gas generating carbon monoxide. You have, uh, you know, if you're cooking in a kitchen, you have particulate matter from the foods. You, you have, um, you know, a variety like CO2 that can be measured, and, and that's actually a unique uh, technology that uh, in the HVAC world, uh, you have demand control ventilation because so each building that you have is required by code to have a certain amount of fresh air coming in to that space. And you know, on average, it's 15 CFM per person. It depends on um, you know, if it's a classroom or if it's a gymnasium, that number varies. But uh, there are some interesting, an interesting technology is to, to monitor CO2 levels in a space will allow the, uh, the fresh air from the outside to modulate based on the inside. Uh, the, the occupancy, basically. So, um, the, but the amount of the productivity that you're talking about, like, so people have abilities to uh, generate uh, a lot of work whenever, you know, they're in a comfortable environment, and a lot of that has to do with ventilation. Um, we have, there, you know, the, the people that are, that are operating in a space, they, they need to have uh, access to operable windows. They have, um, you know, basically a lot of, a lot of different uh, things that are, that are happening on a daily basis that they that have to, like, flush out. And, um, and you know, basically they, uh, they're, they're monitored at a, at a building level, but it's hard for them to know exactly, like, what they're breathing in and out. And so having it tested and having it uh, verified by a third party or, or someone who has uh, you know, the access to the equipment gives them, I guess, some indication and some insight into what their, uh, what their day in, day out uh, air quality is in their office space. And one, one of the things that struck me recently is we have a, a green schools committee at, at USGBCLA and uh, they did some studies on schools. And so you think about a lot of our schools were designed to have a limit of 20 to 25 kids per class, right? You go in a lot of classrooms now, there's 40 you know, plus in a lot of classrooms. And so here you have these classrooms that are oftentimes the buildings are you know, 50 to 60 years old with almost twice as many people in it. And uh, they're wondering why you know, people aren't performing well on tests during the day. And they, and they monitor the CO2 level. And the CO2 level basically... Going during the day, it would continue to go up, and as the kids were in there breathing the whole time, uh, it was getting in unhealthy levels for a majority of the day. And obviously, you're, you're going to live; you're not, you're, you're fine. But it was affecting performance, and so they looked at schools with with good ventilation uh, that were newer, modernized, and were loaded the right way, and they saw about a 10% increase in, in, in scores just based on, on that alone, because people weren't getting the oxygen they needed essentially to, to perform. So. Uh, these things definitely have a, have a big impact. Um, taking a step back from it, I want to make sure we have some time for questions. I think we're, we're getting close to that time now. 
Um, if you could impart to the audience kind of one thing from you about how you could create a healthier environment to be in, uh, what would that be? I'll start with you, Lori. I think we've touched on quite a few things, um, incorporating nature, making sure the air quality is good. One thing we haven't really touched too much on that I think is really vital too is water and water quality. Um, some of the testing that we've done in buildings in downtown Los Angeles, and this applies residentially, commercially, really across the board, uh, was pretty surprising what's in the water. <laughs> I mean, it's, it may be In a good way? In a good way? No, no. in a not good way. <laughs> and, you know, with all due respect to DWP and whatever's coming out of there, by the time it travels through this network of piping and gets to, say, an office or a home, uh, there's, you know, heavy amounts of some really nasty things like your shampoos and conditioners, birth control pills, um, you know, a lot of uh, pharmaceuticals, things like that that are actually in the water. So it's really not expensive to filter your water, and it's really encouraged to do that. There's some water right over there that's heavily oxygenated. That's really good. Uh, alkaline water, things of that nature. So I think the water quality in the space that you're showering in, in your residence, for example, if it's filtered, uh, you know, at the kitchen, at the bathroom sink, what do you, you know, what are you brushing your teeth with? Which water is it filtered? Or is it, you know, the one coming from DWP, which, again, all due respect to them, it's coming through the piping system and creating uh, and catching a lot of things with it as it goes. So uh, water quality is really important. We talked about air. We know we, we can live a little bit without water. We can live without food, uh, for sure, for a while. But without air, that's really good. We don't have too much time, right? So just thinking along those things and thinking about what you would do for your plants or your pets, do for yourself, do for the humans that are occupying this space as well. Thank you. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's a kind of crazy day to be even wrapping my head around this question. We have about 15 houses that we delivered sort of in the last six months up to Sonoma. And like just right now, I don't know how many are kind of under threat, but it's, uh, it's, you know, there's, I think there are probably things that we can do in order to make sure that, you know, defensible space around our houses, things like this, these are all really good ideas, especially if we're living in kind of a wildland urban interface. Um, coming back to the air quality issue, we're pretty excited about um, ERV systems, energy recovery ventilator systems. These are essentially um, you know, devices that kind of take in air from the outside, filter it, and then temper it with the energy and humidity of stale interior air, which then gets extracted out of the building. And so these are going on all the time and potentially turning over the entire house, you know, air in the entire house every couple of hours. Uh, filters need to be changed often on these because, of course, you know, they are doing a lot of work. Uh, in terms of filtering the air. But it, it, these are something that we've started to offer standard in, in our homes. And it's just a, it's a really exciting thing to think about just because there are situations we've all been in. We're so lucky to be here in California. But there are times when, like, you want fresh air, but maybe you're a little suspicious about the air that's going on outside of your home. And so um, this is just a way of almost, like, opening a window, but, like, then filtering in all of the fresh air that comes in. And again, I think that... You know, there's a 
again, architects in the 70s thought, hey, let's just seal up the building and like save a whole bunch of energy and it'll be awesome. And then, of course, that led to like sick building syndrome and people, um, you know, because of interior air quality, the environment not being healthy, these ERV systems were, gener- were kind of created as a way to assist being able to seal up a building thoroughly, but then also provide, you know, very controlled kind of infiltration, um, which again, I think, you know, is a great opportunity to um, uh, provide maybe a a safe filtered way. It's also people with allergies and other things like this, um, you know, benefit from, from, from breathing that type of air. And now we're all about passive cooling and natural ventilation, right? We've kind of come back to the other side. Yeah. You know, completely. Exactly. Yeah. No, it's really interesting to see how wrong we get it. <laughs> um, what about you, Grady? Anything you would say to the to the audience here in terms of how to create healthier space? Well, you mentioned biophilic design earlier, and uh, with some of the large materials that we work with at Angel City Lumber, you are we're able to put nature back into space, and and I I think that can't be underestimated the impact that that has. Uh, we worked on a, a hotel recently in West Hollywood, and. We put over 100,000 pounds of wood back into the landscape and the inside of the space. So we made the reception desk and a lot of the furniture inside. And you know, you know being up there and watching people interact, uh, it really has a, a, a positive impact uh, through the the employees that work there and that charisma that they have. Uh, you know, kind of penetrates down to the guests and that whole experience. So. Um, Bringing nature inside, I think, you know, we can't deny the evolutionary uh, relationship that we've had with, uh, you know, all living things, uh, plants included. And so, uh, pets and plants, you can bring those inside. I do also want to mention one thing I don't think we've hit on, which is green, green cleaning products and uh, really looking deeper at what you're using to clean. Um, there's a lot of great products that are out there now. I think a lot of people are used to at least looking at labels when they're buying things now, but uh, even storing, making sure you're storing those in a sealed place can be very important. A lot of those emit uh, toxins in the air over time. Uh, some of the things that, that are simple, and I'm, I was thinking about residential coming in today, you know, trying to avoid carpets and curtains, like little things like that that tend to collect dust, even though you know, I, no, I don't think about it all the time. Even having grates and mats at your entryways to collect as people come in. These little things actually lead to a pretty significant reduction of, of toxins that make into the house. So... Uh, I would encourage people to look at, at, at some of those pieces. And we haven't talked about natural light as much either, and, and I've found that um, that can have a big impact as well. Does anyone want to talk about natural light a little bit? Because I feel like it's worth, worth mentioning. We talked a little bit about circadian, which is that, yeah. that yeah. arcing of the natural light. But as much as possible, natural light is, is real in a space, just makes you feel so much better. So having access to it is, is super important. I think the other thing we didn't touch on, I feel like we're heavy on you know, air, water, kind of mm-hmm. technical things, but this is a design show. We're all, you all are interior designers. You want it to look beautiful. Um, so um, I did bring some materials that are um, an environmental, uh, you can look at them after, but they're, it's a company that does environmental leathers, so fabrics and materials that are sustainable, beautiful, affordable, and, you know, take into account um, the beauty that you want to create in this space as well. So I have to put a plug in for beautiful design. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's <laughs> why we're here. Especially at this show. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I think that natural light, again, like connect to, connection to the outdoors is the sort of 
cornerstone of kind of everything when it comes to creating spaces. And again, I think that, you know, what modernism did so well is kind of just strip away all the ornamentation and, and make it all about that pure, direct, uh, you know, uh, eliminating the threshold between indoors and out and, and, and finding a way to obviously bring light uh, deep into the building. Um, so, yeah, it's just uh, absolutely the most uh, Im important thing. Yeah, and I think overall, the overarching theme is, I think, intentionality. I think we approach these things with an intention to be healthy and to push ourselves. I mean, example, natural light. Uh, I toured a facility about a year and a half ago where it was very deep and they couldn't figure out how to get natural light into the space. They ended up finding parabolic uh, screens for the windows that actually, a slight bit of metal that bend and shot the natural yeah. light deep into the space along the roof. And these aren't things you stumble across unless you have an intentionality of trying to create healthier space. If you're willing to go that extra mile to get natural light or if you want to make sure that you have some sort of natural ventilation, that you have operable windows, dealing with something different to do that. You know, If you want to look for a product that is going to have a lower carbon footprint, finding locally sourced wood to, to go into your, to your, your project. So that's the intentionality, and I think that's what we want to foster in a more holistic way in the, in the design community. Uh, with that, we have some time for some questions. Does anyone have any questions? Yeah. I, I recently bought a, some furniture, new and used, and they both had s smells. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I, I would imagine you have to be careful about new furniture with toxicity, but you might want to think about used furniture too, <laughs> take, really paying attention before you take it into your home. That's a really good point. Things that off-gas in the space, it's not just paint, it's not just carpet, it's, it's the materials from furniture, whether it is new or used, that, that can do that. So it's really important to be mindful of that before people start to occupy yeah. and commission. Knowing it. where your furniture came from before, you wonder, wonder where it was, you know, collecting all that, whatever it collected. Um, I wanted to know, talk, can you talk to designers about the price differential now? I mean, it, it, how much more is green building now? Was it different than it was 10 years ago? What, what's the, is there a financial incentive now? That's a, it's a great question. I mean, one thing, I, I actually was going to mention this earlier, you know, I think what happens oftentimes people do a project, and then when they're about a third way through or halfway through, they're like, oh, we should make this a green project. <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? And then they go back and start to look, and at that point it does add a lot of costs. And so... You know, what we see across the board is if you start from the beginning, uh, making sure that you're doing something sustainably is, is one of your key principles for your project, you can usually do it at, at comparable cost. The challenge for most projects is they look to add green later. And once you get out of that design phase, he was talking about having a meeting with your architect up front. Once you get out of that and you've already got a project that's moving on, it becomes very difficult to shift and there's those, those, those challenges to do that. Does anyone else want to comment on, on that question? Yeah. Well, just um, just the Cal Green code right now is incredibly progressive. Um, it, it was going to be so that every house built in January 1st, 2020 in California was going to need to be net net zero uh, energy. Uh, they they backed out off that somewhat, but as far as like the no VOC, low VOC, formaldehyde free, all of those sort of like rules are in place with all new construction or all kind of permitted renovation construction on the residential side. So what's neat is that in California, at least the labels are all reading well, whether or not in reality it's you know a healthy green home that's um, up to the testing, testing agencies, I guess. But like it is, it, it is it's somewhat baked into the package of, of building, building quite green, um, not 
net zero carbon, uh, but but um, you know very green is is sort of luckily the way that we're being forced to build in California to some degree. I would just quick comment that uh, the projects that have been successful in terms of coming in at first cost uh, comparison were those that had, and I think I'm speaking from commercially, but I believe this applies, gentlemen, in the back to residential. Maybe you did this on yours. Uh, our uh, stakeholder charrettes with all the people that are part of the uh, team, whether it's subcontractors, general contractor, designers, green consultants, you know, having those early on stakeholder charrettes gets everybody's buy-in. They know what's expected. Uh, there's a big education process across the trades that goes with those meetings, and that can really, really help uh, hold hold cost as first cost competitive. No, I agree. Anything else you want to add? Oh. I think the projects that do, if you do choose to go green, they hold their value well too. So, uh, you know, if it's a space that you rent, you can rent it for a higher. It's uh, about five percent higher rental. What's the consumer pushback on? We could build a perfect green home. We could build them in a General Motors assembly line type environment. The right paint, the right pipes, the right everything, and it could done. But then you're going to come out and you're going to assemble it but it's not the home we dreamed about when we were kids. It's not exactly what we wanted. It's not this. Is that a big factor in how we could sell these things? Because you could really start cleaning up quickly if you just said, hey, buy this. It's good. The government will give you a break on, on it tax-wise and everything. But it's not in your mind's eye what you were going to build as a little kid in your kindergarten class. Is that, is that, a, is that an item now? Is that, or, or can people buy something that's good for the environment, good for them, pretty good for them, not exactly what they want. Yeah, if you're specifically talking about ordering off our, a menu like ours. Yeah. Yes. yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, so we use all steel frames so we can actually put glass wherever you want to in the building, including the entire way around the perimeter, and you'd still have your seismic resistance. Um, so you can actually take these standard homes and then tune them to whatever your sort of site exposure conditions are, whether it's views or connections to the outdoors, covered decks, uncovered decks, things like this. And then for us as architects, I mean, it comes down to the fact that a lot of us do dream of like glass and steel boxes. <laughs> so, yeah. so you're kind of scratching one of our itches. Like, um, and, and what's great is that because everybody's so much more sophisticated kind of design-wise in general, like, it, it, we're able to sell our homes at like a fraction of the cost of like site built. And so we feel like we offer a compelling enough value proposition that pushes people towards, hey, I can actually, like on my car, I can kind of customize the interior by choosing some different pre-selected finishes. I can customize the exterior by choosing some different materials. I can move, move the doors and windows around. And then it's like a, a modern greenhouse, which actually is my dream, which is something that I couldn't afford otherwise. So we like to be at that sweet spot. We're certainly not scratching everybody's, uh, you know, um, itch points. That's not a word, but you know what I mean. Like, uh, it's yeah. we're not satisfying everyone, but like, that's um, that's that's okay. We're we're finally at a place, at least us as a company, that we can say no. We actually did have to kind of accommodate more people's desires and and dream home needs at one point in time, and uh, it just we weren't able to, to, to operate at scale by accommodating those needs. Yeah, the one thing I'd say also too is that, you know, new construction, new homes is only really a very small percentage 
you know, our big challenge is really existing buildings in a lot of ways. And, you know, how do we get the right systems in place, whether we retrofit those the right way or we get the right maintenance procedures? You know, 98% of our buildings already exist right now, especially here in a community like LA. So I think there's an interesting balance there because we oftentimes have, you know, leading code in the world here in California. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we have leading design. I mean, people who are willing to take that risk and then you realize you have these fantastic projects that are net zero and doing all these things, but it's only one building in like this massive city. It's what we have to do. One house, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. And there more than there's more than one. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think we're at time, and I uh, just want to say thank you to everyone for attending. Um, hopefully, we shut this down in style. I, I don't know. We, we could shut it down sustainably. Yeah, we shut it down. We did. Um, <laughs> So, but thank you, and, and I would encourage you to reach out to any of us if you have questions about how you can have a more healthy environment, whether where you work or live. For well over a year now, you have been hearing incredible conversations, interviews, and panels with amazing creative talent as part of our Wellness and Design Thought Leadership Series presented by Thermosol. It has been and continues to be an absolute joy working with the entire team at Thermosol from the top down. This multi-generational family business has been producing the gold standard in steam generators, saunas, steam showers, and steam shower accessories for decades. Thermosol is the original steam shower with technology that is state-of-the-art, made and manufactured in the United States. The company's history with steam showers started by David Altman in 1958. Murray Altman acquired Thermosol's steam bath division in 1989, and the company is now led by Mitch Altman from their world-class production facility in Round Rock, Texas. The most successful designers and architects are using steam showers to maximize wellness, relaxation, and enjoyment for their clients. Thermosol is a staunch advocate for the design trade, and I am so proud to have them as a presenting partner of Convo by Design and the Wellness and Design Thought Leadership Series. If not familiar with the entire range of Thermosol products, please check out thermosol.com. Thank you, Ben, Brady, Gordon, and Lori. Great job. Really appreciate it. For more stories like this, make sure you are subscribing to the podcast. You can find the show everywhere you get your favorite podcasts. But you already knew that. What you might not know is that, again, there are literally hundreds of other episodes of Convo by Design for you to binge on right now, dating back to the, what, 2013, 2014, when I first started the show. So go check them out. Thank you, Thermosol, Article, York Wall Coverings, Moya Living, and Franz Wigner for your partnership and your support. You are remarkable partners and amazing allies for the trade, and I appreciate you so much. And thank you for listening. Remember why you do what you do and that the business of design would not be possible without you. And it's about making better the lives of those we serve, right? Until next week, be well and take today first. Mm -hmm.